Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We looked at the first two verses. Now we're going to look at the last two verses of these first four verses. They're one unit of thought, and so I'm going to read the entire passage, although we'll be zeroing in on verses 3 and 4 this morning. And so, brothers and sisters, as I read this to you, I'd like to remind you once again that this is the word of the living God. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Let me pray. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge before you that your testimonies are wonderful. And so our souls long to keep them. Indeed, Lord, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so we open our mouths, as it were, and pant Because we long for your word. So turn to us now, we ask, and be gracious to us, as is your way with those who love your name. Make your face to shine upon us as your servants, and teach us your statutes now, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we pick up where we left off, quite literally, in the first four verses of the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. And just to remind you where we are in the book now, the author of the book of Hebrews has transitioned from chapter 1, where he's glorying, reveling with his audience, in the wonders of this one who is Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has come to save us. He's gloried in the gospel with his audience. But he's moved now from uh, this theology now to the implications of this theology. He applies it to them and says, in light of this reality, here's something that you need to be aware of. And so now he embarks in the second chapter, in these first four verses, on a warning, on an exhortation. He says, listen, you need to be aware that something is happening in your midst Some of you who have been baptized, who have partaken in the Lord's Supper, have heard the word preached, have lived life in the body visibly, are going to turn away from your Christian profession and are going to return back to Judaism, back to the Mosaic Law. This was a temptation for his audience right now because the reality is they were Jews who had lived their whole lives under the law in conformity to the Mosaic law, and yet now they heard the gospel, and they received it, and they made a profession of faith, and were living in the life of the church, but they were being persecuted. 
And they endured it well for a short period of time. But now as time went on, they were being tempted more and more under the weight of losing more and more to turn back to Judaism so that those Jews who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah would stop persecuting them. And the Roman government that did not acknowledge them as a legitimate religion would leave them alone. And so all of these pressures are bearing down on them. And perhaps some of them already have completely apostatized and renounced their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, left the church, and returned back to the synagogues, back to life under the old covenant under Moses. And so the the burden, the pastoral burden of the author of the book of Hebrews is to warn this church To warn these who are professing to believers, don't turn away. And we've seen that he's motivating them with fear. He's warning them and saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. And he he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. I should flip that around, shouldn't I? The lesser to the greater. His argument has two parts. The lesser part is the old covenant. And that's what we looked at last week in verses 1 and 2. And the greater part of the argument is the new covenant, what we'll look at in verses 3 and 4. And here's the basic argument. If it was true that they were punished for despising Moses' law under the old covenant, now that the Son has come and has instituted and announced the new covenant, how much worse will your punishment be if you turn away from that? That's the basic argument from the lesser to the greater And so what I want us to see as we continue to heed this this exhortation is I want us to see two simple parts in these these two verses, verses 3 and 4. Much like we did last time, I want us to see two simple points. First of all, I want us to look at the warning, and you'll see it there at the very beginning of verse 3, the warning that he gives. He's reiterating it for them. And then secondly, in the rest of verse 3 and into verse 4, I want us to see the three witnesses the three witnesses that the author of the book of Hebrews calls to testify against those who think they can just walk away from the new covenant. Three witnesses who testify to the reliability and the validity of the new covenant. And so we're going to look at each of these in turn, understanding that the Spirit of God knows this is a warning that the church needs to hear today. We all know of people who have maybe been in the church and and seemingly, from our perspective, walked with the Lord for a long period of time, and yet eventually they turn away, they abandon the gospel, they abandon the church, and we wonder what happened there. Well, it's not that they lost their salvation, it's that they never had it to begin with. But in a congregation this size, in a group meeting this size, it's not a stretch for us to think that some who are sitting here this morning will do the exact same thing. And so we need to hear this warning. We need to hear it, and we need to receive it as the church, as loving rebuke from God Almighty himself. Because those of us who are believers will be kept by God through this warning as we tremble and repent before it. And so let's look first then at the warning as we find it in the first part of verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He picks up where he left off his argument before transitioning to 
the new covenant, such, such a great salvation. And what he does in continuing this argument is he asks them a rhetorical question. He says, how can we possibly escape if we neglect, if we turn away from this new covenant that has now been announced to us in the Son by preachers, by those who are attesting to God's word? How can we possibly ever escape from the punishment that we will deserve from that? And obviously the answer to that rhetorical question is, there is no escape. There will be no escape from the punishment that we will deserve if we turn away from the Son. Because that was true under the old covenant, and that was a lesser covenant. We'll see that come up again and again throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, that the new covenant that Jesus has cut is a better covenant than the one that was given through Moses. And so he says, just as surely as they were punished under the old covenant for despising it, the punishment will be even greater under the new covenant, if we neglect it and if we despise it and turn away from it. And this is an argument, by the way, that he doesn't just make here. I want to make sure that you understand this with crystal clarity. It's an argument that he picks up again and again throughout the rest of the book. And so I want to jump forward to a chapter in the book of Hebrews that we probably won't revisit until years from now. But turn to Hebrews chapter 10. That's not a critique, by the way. I love how much time we're going to spend in this book. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at uh, verses 28 through 31 with me. Hebrews 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you see the lesser part of the argument here? He's picking it up again. That covenant that was given... By the Lord, through Moses, through angels, through Moses to the people. If it could be established that you had violated it on the evidence of two or three witnesses, then what would happen to you? We looked at this last week, didn't we? Specific examples. You were put to death without mercy. And it would either happen at the hands of the Israelites, as was the case with the the gentleman who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath, The people were commanded to stone him. Or God would directly kill that person. Think of Uzzah. Think of Nadab and Abihu. Think of the various other examples that we looked at. And so he's saying, here's the lesser part of the argument. If you couldn't get off the hook then, if there was no escape then, now look at verse 29 of Hebrews 10. How much worse punishment, how much greater punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. All citations from the old covenant. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So do you see the argument from the lesser to the greater? If this happened to them under the old covenant, which was a lesser covenant, how much more will it happen now? Because they're not just neglecting the Mosaic law. They're now trampling underfoot the Son of God who shed His blood for our salvation. That's what they're doing. 
And, and the just God of the Old Testament, the righteous God of the Old Testament, is the God of the New Testament as well. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he will exact justice on those who profane the blood that was shed under the new covenant for the sins of his people. Terrifying. He picks up this argument again. Just turn probably one page to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. Right before he moves to encouraging and instructing them as to how they should live life together as a body, he says in verse 25 of Hebrews 12, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now why can the author of the book of Hebrews speak so authoritatively? He understands that as he writes this letter, as he pens this sermon to this audience, they're not the words of a man, ultimately. Ultimately, they're the words of God. And so if they are to refuse the one who is speaking, they are to refuse the very God who is speaking through him. Continue on in verse 25. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Who's the one who warned them on earth? Moses as God's mouthpiece. If they didn't escape when they refused him, that's the lesser side of the argument, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, rose, ascended to the Father's right hand, has been given all rule and authority. And so if you reject him, if you refuse his word, how much greater will your punishment be? It will be much worse. So that begs the question, What's the much worse punishment? You don't have to turn there, but let me just read this for you so you can hear it. The much worse punishment is described to us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire at the second coming, when he comes not to save, but to judge, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is the much worse punishment that any unbeliever, any any who is not united to Christ, who is not united to Christ by grace through faith, will experience, and yet that punishment will be even greater for the one who identifies with the local church through baptism, participating in the sacraments, sits under the teaching of the word, and then rejects it and walks away and never comes back. If that was true under the old covenant, how much more true is that under the new covenant? Now, why is this so serious. Why, why is there going to be no way of escape if they neglect the new covenant? Well, he goes on to, to say that it's because the new covenant is such a great salvation. It's a better covenant than the old covenant. It's such a great salvation. And the, the author here is really grappling for words to describe. Language is failing him in glorying in how mighty and wonderful and glorious This salvation is, so he has to say, such a great salvation. Well, what makes it so great? What makes it so wonderful? 
Well, a couple of things, very briefly. First of all, what makes it such a great salvation, the new covenant, is who it saves us from. Who does, who, who does the new covenant save us from? Saves us from God. Saves us from His almighty wrath because, you see, He created us in His image to glorify Him, to worship Him, to honor Him, to live in submission to His Word. That's what He created Adam and Eve to do and us to do, and we haven't done it, have we? We've rejected His Word. We've despised His Word. We've turned away from it, and so we deserve eternal punishment for that. So who are we saved from? God Almighty in His wrath. Who are we saved by is the next question. We're saved by the Son of God. We're saved by God Himself. He lovingly, graciously sent His Son to take the wrath that we deserved upon Himself. Our sins were imputed to Him. And He paid that penalty in full. Became the curse of the law for us so that there's none left for us. And then His perfect law-keeping His perfect track record of always glorifying the Father is now counted as our own. It's imputed to us. And so we're saved from God. We're saved by God. And then lastly, the salvation is so great because we are saved to God. We are saved so that we can have communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The communion that we lost in the garden The communion that we were created for. Oh yes, brothers and sisters, we just get little glimpses of it now in this life. But then when we either close our eyes in death or he comes back, it will be perfected because we will be perfected. And so this is what makes this salvation so great. It's the fact that we're saved from God, by God, for God. As he graciously draws us to himself. And so here's the warning then, reiterated, restated yet again for you. If you were punished for transgressing, disobeying the old covenant under Moses, how much greater will the punishment be if you neglect this new covenant that's been given in the Son? Surely there is no way of escape. Probably the worst, scariest words you could ever hear, right? You think about, that's probably the final words that some of these people in these fires that were caught in these fires were thinking, there's no way of escape. It's terrifying to contemplate that in regards to a fire that can just destroy our bodies. How much greater should we tremble in fear, understanding there's no way of escape for body or soul when it comes to the Lord, because he can throw both into hell. Do you hear the warning? Do you hear it? This happens in the church. People that profess to be believers walk away. They leave. You can all sit there and think of individuals where this has happened. And you go, what was that all about? Right here. We should pray for those folks. We should tremble at the reality that waits them. But this is what awaits them if they never turn back and repent. Thus revealing that they never really belong to Christ in the first place. So now that we've looked at the warning uh, of what will happen if we ignore the new covenant, let's look now at the witnesses that the author of the book of Hebrews calls to testify against those who would walk away. And not just that, but they testify to the validity and the reliability of the new covenant. Let's look at the witnesses uh, in the rest of verse 3 and into verse 4. And as we, we do that, I want you to keep two things firmly fixed in your mind. First of all, 
Does the Lord need to provide any witnesses for us? Does the Lord need anybody to testify for him so that we can know that what he is saying or what he is doing is valid or reliable? No, we don't. Or he's not beholden to do that. We can't demand that of him. So then why does he do this? Behold the graciousness of our God, brothers and sisters. He knows our frame. He knows we're but dust. He knows that that we struggle, that we still have unbelief. And so he gives three witnesses. Not necessary, but absolutely incredibly gracious of him. Also, behold not just the graciousness of our God, but the pastoral wisdom of the author of the book of Hebrews. Because remember, these folks grew up in the synagogues. They knew the Old Testament scriptures, and so they would know Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, Only on the evidences of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. How did you know something was valid or reliable? Because there were two or three witnesses. And so, beautifully, pastorally, were given these three witnesses. The author gives these for his audience that would probably potentially in some ways want this. So let's look at each one of these. Let's look at the first uh, witness in verse 3. And I'll start at the very beginning so we don't get lost. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's the first witness. It was declared at first by the Lord. Now, question, who is the Lord? Yes, I I just heard somebody say it. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one who has come and declared this. Now, here's a question for you, a follow-up question. It was declared at first by the Lord. Now, that should make you pause and ask a question. Is the author of the book of Hebrews saying that the gospel was unknown to the old covenant saints? That the gospel was declared for the first time? When Jesus finally came, when the Son finally took on flesh and started preaching and teaching? No, that's not what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying. Why do we know that? Because we can go back to Genesis chapter 3.15 and see the first time that the gospel was proclaimed. You remember the context. Genesis 3, the fall just happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word, ate of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the Lord curses them. And as he's cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent, what does he say? He says there will be enmity between uh, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, between the seed of God and the seed of Satan. And eventually the seed of the, the woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent after the serpent strikes the offspring's heel. And so this is the gospel. A Messiah was coming. A deliverer was coming. A serpent crusher was coming. And so I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament, I'm just groaning inwardly. When you start all the way back in Genesis and work your way through. Why? Because what are the people of God thinking? Perhaps this is the promised one. Perhaps this is the promised one. Nope. Maybe this one. Nope. Maybe this one. Nope. All the prophets, priests, and kings, and judges were but types of shadows pointing us to the par excellence prophet, priest, king, and judge who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's this groaning as we wait. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Um, We're longing for you who waits in lonely exile here. And then finally he comes, doesn't he? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, The serpent crusher 
The promised Messiah has finally come. And God himself testifies to that, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 9, you remember there's these moments in Jesus' ministry, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, most people just saw the flesh, but then at times the divinity of Jesus would would just come pouring forth. The transfiguration was one of those instances. And so here he is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John are are looking on in awe. And what's the voice that they hear from heaven? What does the voice from heaven say? Luke 9, 5. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, here's the Father saying of the Son, This is my Son, my chosen one. This is my Son, the Messiah. So listen to him. Listen to him. He is the one that testifies to the gospel. He is the one who teaches the truth about it. And so now he's here and he's come. And so understand, it's not that Jesus is the first one to make the gospel known. It's been made known in the old covenant, promise after promise after promise. And the work of Christ, as mysterious as this is to us, was even applied to the Old Testament saints before Jesus even came and accomplished it. Because there is no salvation outside of the Messiah. They were saved by looking forward to his coming in faith, just as we are are looking back on his first coming and forward to his second coming. And so the point is not that Jesus is the first one to ever declare the gospel, but he's the first one who, who has come and actualized, realized the gospel, brought these realities, brought the fulfillment that the old covenant was just types and shadows pointing forward of. Now the Son has come, and so He is making the gospel known because He is the gospel. So behold, brothers and sisters, the first witness, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the promise, um, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. First witness is Jesus. Second witness is at the end of verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me again. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, first witness, and it was attested to us by those who heard. Now let me ask you a question. Who are those who were eye and ear witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the apostles. It's the apostles, the twelve that he called to himself. They were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. They saw what he did. They, They heard what he said. And so they are those who attest to others about the truth and reality of what Jesus did. Which just in passing, I can't help but mention this, points to the fact that Christianity, folks, is not some self-help program. It's not some, some fairy tale that we think just helps us if we believe it. It is based on historical facts and historical eyewitnesses of those historical facts, things that happened in time and space and history, and doctrines, understanding interpretations of those historical events. That's the whole point of those who are attesting to those who hear um, the apostles themselves. And this is exactly as Jesus said it would be. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. Jesus is celebrating Passover in the upper room with his disciples, with his apostles. And he tells them, But when the Helper comes, who's the Helper? The Holy Spirit. 
when I, whom I will send to you from the Father, when's that going to happen? When Jesus is crucified, dead, buried, raised, ascended to the Father's right hand, then he sends the Holy Spirit, pouring out um, as, a, as a sign the fact that he's been coronated as the promised Davidic king. He then pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. That's what's going to happen. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then he goes on to say in verse 27, and you also will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. And then that's what we see actually happen in the book of Acts, don't we? These eye and ear witnesses then make these, these realities of what Jesus said and did known to others. The reason that these believers, uh, these Hebrew Christians are believers is because someone shared it with them. And it can all be traced back to one of these original eyewitnesses. That's why Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is just that, isn't it? The disciples testifying, witnessing to the realities of all that Jesus said, of all that Jesus did, all that he began to do and teach, the Holy Spirit empowered them to continue on that work under the orders of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first witness is Jesus the Lord. Second witness, the apostles. And the third witness is in verse 4. So look at verse 4 with me. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, I I can't help but point this out here. Do you notice the Trinitarian nature of the witnesses here? Who's the first witness? It's Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Then you've got the apostles. They're not a part of the Trinity. Don't misunderstand. And then you have who? God and the Holy Spirit. So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit serving as witnesses here to the truth, the validity of the new covenant and of all that Jesus accomplished in his coming, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. And how has the Father and the Spirit testified to those things, proved as witnesses? By signs and wonders and miracles. Now here's the thing. If you're a Hebrew and you're very familiar with your Old Testament, you hear signs and wonders and miracles, and you automatically start to think about time periods throughout salvation history when God does miraculous, wonderful things. They're usually, they're not all over the place throughout the Scriptures. They're in times when the Lord is sending a message through His messenger, and to prove that the message actually is coming from God, there are signs and wonders and miracles that prove that. Because they're things that only God could do. They're supernatural. And they reveal the power of God. And they're signs. They show that this message originates not from the the mind of some mere man, but ultimately from God himself. And so the first place, most likely, that these Jews would have thought about, their minds would have gone to, would have been Moses during the time of the Exodus. And as proof of that, let me just read for you Acts chapter 7, verse 36. Stephen is before the Sanhedrin. He's doing some biblical theology with them, some of the history of Israel. And Stephen says, This man, Moses, 
led them out. Notice this language. Performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So what's the point here? Moses, to prove that the words he was saying were God's word, was doing signs and wonders and miraculous things. Just think about the plagues. The plagues, yes, show that at best the gods of the Egyptians are but demons and the God of Israel has all power over them. But it also shows Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites that this word that Moses is speaking is the word of God Almighty himself. Same message is communicated when the Red Sea parts for the Israelites and then closes in on the Egyptians. Same thing when they're in the wilderness wandering and Moses can simply speak to a rock in the desert and water comes forth or manna is provided from heaven, or quail are given, so on and so forth. They're all meant to show the validity of the message that Moses bore under the old covenant. And the same thing is true when you then come to the new covenant. The same language is picked up in reference to the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles. It's to show the continuity that this message has always come from the Lord. Look at I want you to actually turn here with me. Look at Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 22. Pentecost is happening. Jesus has ascended. He's pouring out his Holy Spirit upon the disciples. Some unbelieving Israelites are there, and they're like, what is going on? Are these guys drunk? No, they're not drunk. And so then Peter stands up and, and preaches a sermon to them so that they would understand what's going on. And here's what I want you to pay special attention to. Look at what Peter says in this sermon about the ministry of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, here's our language again, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What's the point? God was attesting to the fact that this is my messenger of the new covenant through signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus did. And all you have to do is think about his ministry. And you, a, a catalog of them should come to mind for you. Right? That he's, he's walking on water. He's calming storms. He's raising people from the dead. He's multiplying bread so thousands can eat it when there's only like five loaves and two fishes. And on. And on. The point isn't Jesus isn't going around being some freak show saying, look at all the power I have. Ultimately, why did he say he came? I came to preach the kingdom of God, the gospel. And these signs and wonders are are but a validation that what I'm speaking comes from God himself because I am God and I am his word and I am his messenger. And then the same thing is said about the apostles. As the baton is then passed to them, and they carry on and continue to do all that Jesus began to do and speak. You don't even have to turn to a different place in your Bible. Just look at verse 43 with me of Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.43, Luke records for us, And awe, or fear, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs, there's our language again, wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What's the point? It's to serve as validation that this message is from God. It's the same message that Jesus preached, right? People will run across the apostles and they'll know 
that they were with Jesus because they're hearing the same message and they're seeing the same signs and wonders and miracles. It's to prove that the message they declare is from God himself. This is why Paul says, you don't have to turn there, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so here's the point, by the way, brothers and sisters. Why do we not have signs and wonders and mighty works today? Uh, If anyone's sick, I'm not going to be able to come to you and and heal you the way that the apostles did because we don't have apostles anymore. The, The canon of Scripture, brothers and sisters, is closed. We're not receiving new revelations and then stamping them, stapling them into our Bibles. If you're doing that, I want to talk to you after the service and see where you think this source of revelation is coming from. And then I may ask for a few signs and wonders and mighty acts. They're they're not around anymore. I'm not saying the Lord doesn't do miracles. So don't misunderstand me. But these kinds of signs of an apostle that Jesus did, that the apostles did, that Moses did, these don't happen anymore because the revelation of God, as far as the scriptures are concerned, are closed. And so those sign gifts, if you will, are closed as well. But do you see the the witnesses, the witnesses that the author of the book of Hebrews has called the Lord Jesus himself, the apostles attesting to it, and then the Father and the Spirit through signs and wonders and and miracles. Brothers and sisters, are there there any more uh, witnesses that you need than these? It's, it's, It's quite the lineup. That's why there's no escape. These witnesses will testify against you, and you will have no argument that you can stand up against this argument. This crushes all arguments, the weight of this evidence. And so how can you possibly escape? You can't. And so who do you think you are? That you will either give in to temptation, uh, feel yourself being tempted, or just walk away from the church. What do you think you are doing? There is no shelter There is no refuge under the old covenant types and shadows because the reality has come. Jesus has come. It is he alone who makes purification for sins. You can't purify yourself. The blood of goats and sheep and animals can't satisfy the wrath of God and purify for your sins. And so what's the point? Look to Jesus. Look to him. It's not an option to go back to the old covenant because the new covenant has come. And after you've professed faith and been in this this family, in this congregation, and if you turn away and never come back, your punishment is even greater than it will be for, for any other unbeliever because your culpability is greater. God is a just God. He's going to punish you, judge you, based on the revelation that you have. And you now have had the full revelation revealed to you, preached to you. And intellectually you understood it. And intellectually you assented to it. And then you walked away. Tremble. Because there is no escape. And this punishment will be much more severe. Are you seeing the argument? Are you seeing, are you hearing the warning? Are you trembling before it, before the wrath and power of Almighty God? That there is no escape if we turn away from Christ and His church? Because there is no escape. Now, 
Brothers and sisters, if you're sitting out there this morning and you are united to Christ, you're going to find yourself trembling. You're going to find yourself saying, I don't want to neglect this great salvation. I don't want to drift away from it. I want to pay much closer attention. I want to repent. I don't want to go down that road. I rightly, with a contrite heart, fear and tremble before God. And brothers and sisters, get on your face and thank God Almighty because that is His mighty, powerful work of preserving you. And you will endure because He is keeping you. And one of the ways that you know, the only way that you can know that you will persevere and endure is based on your response to this text. If you hear this this morning and say, that pastor, he doesn't have anything to say with me. I'm good. Me and my sin. Jesus paid for it. We're just, we're fine. You know, I actually, I don't go to church normally. I'm not tied to a local church body. I just came this morning and I'm probably never going to come again. He doesn't know what he's, what he's talking about. I, I tremble f- for you. I'm frightened, terrified for you because you're, you're, you're showing that you're, you're not going to persevere. You're not going to endure. It's, you see, the response to this warning is, is how you know that the Lord is at work within you. I'm not saying that there aren't some of you that may turn away from this and then the Lord moves you to repent, but you should have no assurance of your salvation at all if you do not tremble before this and flee to Christ. Because what's the call? It's to look to Jesus, to look to the Son, to pay much closer attention to Him. So if you're a tender heart here this morning, with a tender conscience trembling, I'm not calling you to look closer to yourself, but to fix your gaze on your Savior, to fix your gaze on the glorious gospel that's been proclaimed and the new covenant realities and privileges that are yours. But if you find your heart drifting and just rejecting this message, you won't have any... Repent and look to the Son. Repent. Now, the whole part of this, the whole point of this argument, rather, from the lesser to the greater, is to motivate us to do that first command in verse 1. This is the bummer of breaking the argument up into two weeks of sermons because the unit of thought is one. But it drives us back to the command. What's the command in verse 1 of Hebrews 2? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. So if you're a believer here this morning, you're asking yourself, how do I do that? How do I pay much closer attention? How do I make sure that I I don't drift? Now, the Lord's going to empower you to do that. The reason you're even asking that question and have that desire is because God has graciously given it to you. And yet, then there are things for us to do as he empowers us to do them, right? So what are those things? Well, broad brushstrokes. The most helpful thing I can say, and then I'll explain it, don't worry, is to attend regularly, obsessionally, day and night to the means of grace. You say, what, what, what are the means of grace? The Word of God and prayer. Attend to it. Read God's Word. Meditate on God's Word. Pray God's Word. One of the best spiritual barometers for you is do you come excitedly Sunday morning? Do you look forward to it all week long? Not because of the exceptional eloquence of the preacher, but because the Word of God is opened up and preached to God's people. And God takes that word and applies it to his children. 
caring for them, loving them. That's a wonderful barometer of where you're at spiritually. On the opposite end of the spectrum, are you always looking for excuses to not come? Uh, Does do other things that are more important squeeze out the priority of paying much closer attention to what you have heard in corporate worship? Well, the kids have sports. Well, we got to take vacation at some point. Not saying there aren't exceptions. That's not the point. The point is, is there a consistent pattern where you're paying much closer attention and that's showing up in how often you're here? Does it show up as a priority on your schedule? Because where your treasure is by way of time, there your heart will be also. Now, those of you who come regularly, are you paying attention? (laughs) Are you attentive to what is being said and the realities? Because the, the, the fact of the matter is, we don't trust in the means of grace in and of themselves, do we? No, because why do, we, why do we attend to the means of grace? Because God has said, here's what I've given you that I will use to keep you, to preserve you, to cause you to change and grow and repent and look to me in faith. It's the word. It's prayer. It's the proclamation of God's word. So are you attentively listening? excitedly receiving what the Lord has for you in his word? And you say, well, it's never anything new. It's just the gospel. Yep. You need that constantly to hear it and to receive it. So are you regularly attending corporate worship? Are you you listening? Are you paying attention? Not just head knowledge, not just something you check off, but Lord, what do you have for me? Lord, please change me. Lord, give me a love for your word. Are Are you memorizing scripture? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you doing that privately? Are you doing that corporately? Are you doing that throughout the week? Are you pursuing relationships with brothers and sisters who who encourage you to pay much closer attention, who stir you up to love and good deeds, who proclaim the word to you, remind you of the gospel, point you back to the Lord and his word again and again and again, and pray for you. We need each other. Probably the greatest lack in the church, the Western churches, is our lack of being involved in each other's lives in that. And then are you communing with Almighty God Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saying, give me a heart that loves you, that, that, that understands, that, that just feasts on your word. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to pay much closer attention to what we've heard so we don't drift from it, so we don't neglect it. And as you find yourself saying, yes, I want to do that, yes, oh Lord, thank you, thank you for the refuge that is mine in Christ, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't, please, don't get overly focused on yourself. Repent and turn outwards towards the Lord in faith. And know He is the author, the beginner, and the finisher of your faith. He's given it to you. He's going to preserve it. You will endure. And there are things for you to do as you endure. Things that you will want to do. Things that you're commanded to do in the Word. And so thank him for that. And know that he will save you to the uttermost. And so it's my prayer that the cry of our hearts will be the words that we already sang in that hymn. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love.
Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. A heart that cries that is a heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit and kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for you as one of his sheep, and no one will pull you out of the Father's hand. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the promises, the clear promises of your word that you will preserve your people. We know it's not something that we necessarily like to experience, trembling at your word. For some of us, we think, no, no, when we try to run away from it, no, Lord, may we tremble before you and then flee to Christ. Know that he is our refuge, he is our purification for sins. And may we persevere, may we endure as you empower us to that end. Attending to your word, attending to prayer, attending to fellowship with brothers and sisters, not abandoning the assembly of the saints, but glorying in this good news together. And if there's any here who are drifting, bring them to yourself, bring them to repentance. And if there are any unbelievers here this morning, oh, may they tremble at your word and be saved. Lord God, only you can do this, and so we ask that you would. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who keeps his sheep. Amen.